0: Welcome back, listeners. This is part six of our continuing coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial with Professor David Schultz. We're picking up where we left off when I ask about the possible impact of Dante Wright's death during his arrest in Minnesota. In addition, we'll be discussing the tactics of the defense team, vital points for the jury to consider, and if it was a good idea for Derek Chauvin not to take the stand. We now return to our episode, already in progress. (laughs) I've got a couple questions about the prosecution's tactics, but I want to talk about externalities right now, just real quick. Of course, Dante Wright, as we've been reading in the news, a 20-year-old man that was killed by police while trying to escape his arrest on April 11th. Now, since that time, there's been unrest across the country, especially in Minneapolis, because this occurred near Minneapolis. And uh, right after that, the defense sought to sequester the jury. So tell us what happened there. And I guess what was the result?
1: Well, just for people to realize, like the physical proximity, Brooklyn Center is approximately about let's say seven miles, give or take a couple of miles, maybe ten miles. So very um, close from from where the trial was occurring at this point. Um, it's a suburb right on top of of Minneapolis. You know, very you know, you know some suburbs are are connected to bigger cities. It's really a suburb of Minneapolis at this point, point. and when that story broke a week ago Sunday, it was absolutely everywhere in the news. It just exploded in terms of, of it happening, and defense was very concerned that the story of another police shooting could taint the jury, requested sequestration immediately. Judge has turned it down. Um, I suspect if there's a guilty verdict, we are going to see this is one of the grounds for appeal, but just to give people an idea of what it's like again, you know, it's, we are, it is very tense incredibly tense in Minneapolis, St. Paul and in the area right now. Um, We also had over the weekend another police shooting. It was a shooting this time. uh, It was a white person, a white Caucasian who had carjacked a vehicle and then was uh, basically was then trying to, after he abandoned the car, got on the highway and tried to now carjack another car by gun. So it's an incredibly dangerous situation in which um, gunfire and the, the suspect was arrested. I just mentioned that because we are on constant pins and needles. We have police coming, are deployed, uh, lots of locations. The state has requested state troopers from Ohio. They're coming in and we have the National Guard basically patrolling Brooklyn Center, ready to patrol in Minneapolis. Just to give you an idea how tense it is, the Minneapolis public school system, which only finally went back to school in person because it was not in person because of the pandemic, um, the school district said immediately all schooling in the Minneapolis public school system is going online again because of fear of what would happen uh, with unrest. And so I hope that paints the picture of just uh, um, I can't even pins and needles is not the word I can even come up with here. It's, it's like, what I don't know high alert that everybody is under at this point.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's weighing on the jury right now. And it shouldn't be, uh, you know, if you're going to, you know, transact justice here, but it definitely it can't, you can't help but think that the jury feels like they're under pressure here. So oh, let yeah. me transfer quickly over to, because um, I want to get to these two questions and I've got one in particular I want to ask you before we close it out, which I think will be pretty interesting. But the defense has uh, utilized some tactics here too. And there's two particular events I want to run by you that honestly, I was a little surprised made it into the testimony, made it into the record. And so you brought up the spark of life analysis in, uh, in one of our previous interviews here. But uh, I want to bring up this Previous arrest that George Floyd had back in 2019. And normally that would not be allowed, but it was introduced and it was uh, done by Officer Scott Crichton, who was part of this arrest. He presented and sort of supported uh, with his testimony his body cam video showing this arrest of George Floyd in 2019. Now it was admitted under a very narrow condition, and that was to show what George Floyd might act like under the influence of drugs. And so the notion here is that he had pills in his mouth. You can see that in this video that you hear one of the officers asked him to spit something out. And so there's sort of that implication right there, but the jury cannot also help, but see George Floyd in a very similar way, not cooperating with police acting in a very uh, similar way. And so that was specifically instructed not to go against the character of George Floyd, but you know, I can't help, but think that that is what exactly what the jury is going to zero in on. So I was surprised. And what, what are your thoughts there? Why would the judge allow that?
1: Well, I think he allowed it for a couple of reasons. One is that they were allowing some stuff about Derek Chauvin's past police behavior. And, okay. Um, on one level, this is not a legal answer. This is what the classic: well, we're going to split the baby in half. You know, <laughs> prosecution gets some stuff. We're going to give the defense some stuff. But what the defense wants to argue here is that George Floyd has a consistent behavior when he's arrested. That behavior that he was exhibiting. In 2020, where the allegations are that he was high on drugs, is consistent with the behavior that he was exhibiting back in 2019 when he was previously arrested in Minneapolis. So I think the defense wants to be able to show that guess what? Listen, even though we don't have a perfect answer to being able to say he was definitely high we can draw a parallel and say, look at drugs in one case, here's how he acted. This case, this is how he's acting. There's some evidence about drugs in his system. Maybe he was high also. And then therefore, if he was high on drugs, Derek Chauvin has to deal with somebody who's perhaps high on drugs, uh, whose behavior might be unpredictable, et cetera, et cetera. So I, th- I think they're trying to sort of draw that parallel and say, given all that, it would be reasonable for him to do that is Chauvin what he did?
0: Okay, my next question for the prosecution tactics: the forensic panel, as presented by Dr. David Fowler, that's their their medical cause of death expert. Now. I heard the objections to this from the uh, prosecution. They they went and reviewed this, and uh, I think the prosecution has a good point. So Dr. David Fowler works with the forensic panel, and that's a, a panel of other doctors as well. So he analyzes death. Other doctors have different specialties, but also non-doctors that are scientists that uh, contribute to this. And their job is to review you know, cause of death to make sure all of the sciences are included. So he's making this presentation, and the prosecution makes a point. And this is one I would agree with. I, I did quite understand why the judge allowed this, but the prosecution made the points like, well, there's 13 experts as part of this panel. And this one person is presenting their findings. I'd like an opportunity to cross-examine those experts. So again, is that kind of getting into that balancing factor? Is that why the judge allowed this? I think so. I think you're absolutely correct.
1: Yeah. Is that at some point, I mean, for those people who practice law know that there's supposed to be rules of evidence that dictate all this, but at some point I'm just you know, we have to sort of go to beyond the law and say kind of like human nature type of questions here that I think the judge is just going to try to, as much as possible, find ways of, of giving both the prosecution and defense a little bit of leeway, especially in a complex case like this. And so I think you're absolutely right. I think it's what was going on here. All right.
0: I've got a couple more questions. I, I don't want to move faster, but there's one I do want to take a little time on, if you'll permit me. So I think I already know your answer to this question, but I'm going to After you answer it with your gut reaction, I want to ask a quick follow-up on that. So should Derek Chauvin have taken the stand on his own behalf in this case?
1: No, I don't think he should have. Okay. I'm not sure at this point he could have done anything to help himself. I'm convinced if had he had gone on the witness stand, what was going to happen is that the prosecution was going to show Derek Chauvin that nine minute and 29 second video. And every second, they're going to ask him, what were you thinking? What were you doing? As much as juries want to hear from the defendants, I just don't see how at this point he could have helped himself. Okay, so I'm going to provide some additional elements
0: here just based on kind of the media observation. I want to see if, because I heard a little hesitation there, Professor. I want to see if your analysis changes. So, this case has been in the media for a long time, almost a year, right? So, you've got this video that's out there from one of the bystanders that was on social media, so it made it around the world, right? And then you've got the uh, news media latches on to that. And then you have, um, you know, you have all of these like stories that come out that we're reading constantly, and you assemble this jury. There's that iconic photo that was part of that freeze frame that I was talking about earlier, where you kind of have this look on um, Derek Chauvin's face of uh, either frustration or indifference, you know, depending on how you look at it. And you see his knee, which really does appear to be on the neck of George Floyd. That gets around the world. Now, in the courtroom, he's wearing a mask most of the time, and people are talking about him in the third person. And even on the video, the body cam video, you don't hear a lot from Derek Chauvin. Now, Derek Chauvin's a real person. You know, Derek Chauvin was married. Derek Chauvin is a police officer who has been a police officer for, you know, almost 30 years. And he also served in the army. So he's got a history. He's a real person. But I didn't feel that, um, that the defense kind of churned that up a little bit. It's like put him on the stand and show that he's a real person, have him maybe explain a couple of these things. Does that change your analysis? No, not a bit. Okay, fair enough. fair enough. Fair enough. Now you're the expert. I just wanted to see, you know, how how you feel about that with these media, kind of these uh, trial by media cases when they come up. So, all right, closing remarks. You and I talked in our pregame. You had some opinions on this. So I want to get pros cons of each side in the uh, closing remarks, and then I want to get to one more question. We'll close it out. Okay, they were
1: too long, too bloated, <laughs> and neither side did a good job of doing what they're supposed to do, which is what take all of the information they have and wrap it into a story that makes the context for their arguments understandable. Closing arguments are about what? Telling a story. And I don't feel like either of them did a good job in terms of doing that. They basically what? Relitigated their cases.
0: Okay. Last question for you real quick. Now the jury goes into deliberation and what do you think are the big aspects of the evidence that they're going to be debating over?
1: Well, we already talked about this in the sense that it's going to be cause of death. And at the same time, it's going to be whether the officer acted reasonably under the situation. Those are going to be the big ones. And if they get to those and say, yes, unreasonable, yes, cause of death, then it's going to get to the third hurdle, which is the state of mind of Derek Chauvin.
0: Well, Professor, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for coming back on. And can I count on you for one more episode after the verdict? Sure. Thanks. And thank you listeners for tuning in and making the show part of your day. If you like what you heard, please recommend the show to a friend. And once again, thank you to our sponsor, Nota. You can find them at TrustNoda.com forward slash legal. That's Nota spelled N-O-T-A. And last but not least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LTN audio crew for doing what they do because they do it so well. This has been Legal Talk today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody.